I have a very interesting title for my sermon today. Uh, I titled it The Wheelbarrow and the Megaphone. The Wheelbarrow and the Megaphone. I have one of each here. I should roll this out so you can see it. Tracy Graves let me borrow her, her wheelbarrow. And uh, it's nice and clean, which may come into play in a little bit. And I've got my megaphone. So what I'd like to do is move through this passage and show you how these connect and how it has everything to do with King David's words in Psalm 32. So um, let's pray before we jump into these verses and ask for the Lord's blessing. Oh God, we look to you now and we ask for your help. These are spectacular verses of truth and consequence for us. We thank you for the many who have been impacted by these very verses over the years, who, who now are face to face with you because of the work you've accomplished in them as they've studied these verses. And I pray, Lord, that that would have the same impact for us today. That as we see, we would, we would celebrate your love, your goodness to us. Lord, that you would open our, our hearts to your love, to embrace you, to, to respond to you. Give us the faith we need to place it in Christ Jesus and be saved. And for all who have already done that, Lord, I pray today that there would be a greater boast, like King David, that our boast would be in the Lord more resolved, more deep, more joy-filled a boast than when we began this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been moving through Romans little by little, and we come now into the transition between chapter 3 and chapter 4. And really, Paul's going to be making this case for a couple more chapters. You know how, how Paul works. He doesn't say things just super small. He he builds them out. He makes a case. He presents it as if he was giving a, a courtroom uh, prosecution. And so in the early chapters, he made a very strong and foolproof defense under inspiration of God for our desperate need of salvation. Total depravity is the reality for every single human in every single place on this earth and at all times. We need salvation. That is not up for debate at this point in Romans. It is clear. How do we find salvation then? How do we find that salvation? Well, that's the part that Paul is just moving in. And little by little, he's taking any ground that would somehow look to our works, something that we would do to try to earn or merit this salvation before the Lord. And today, we're going to see him just dial it in all the more so that we are left with no ground to stand on, to think that somehow we could earn this salvation in ourselves. It is truly the gift of God. So I want to begin actually with chapter uh, 3, verse 28. I've titled these two verses here, Justification and Boasting. First, I want to look at justification. Then we're going to come back to 27 and see why he asks this question. So we start in 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, Martin Luther would, would, would long for us to hear his, his little insertion here. He, he made great work to try to emphasize this. We hold that one is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law. It's one of the huge distinctions between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant protesting Reformation, right? All the way back in the day, sparked by Martin Luther as he studied these verses. He saw that this, this suggestion that somehow faith and works are what justify us. He saw that it's not consistent with the Word of God. That's just simply not there. It is not faith and a measure of our works that make us righteous. It is faith alone, faith alone, apart from works of the law. And so you have ringing out from the Reformation, sola fide, sola fide. It is that we are justified by faith alone. Faith alone is what justifies us. We are justified by grace through faith, and each of these is alone. 
no merit of our own. I want to illustrate this by telling a bit of a story. This is a, a true story, as best as I can uh, come up with. Uh, and the story is told of a man named Charles Blondin. Blondin, I hope I'm saying his name right. He was known as the, the great uh, uh, risk taker over Niagara Falls. Back in the day, um, people found this amazing waterfall. Who, who's been to Niagara Falls? Have you been there? Okay. We went there on our second honeymoon, something like that. Very romantic place to go, right? You get your raincoat on and you, you ride the boat under the mist of the falls and you kiss. That's, yes, that was awesome. But long time before we did that, there was a man named Charles Blondin, and he thought, you know what? I'm not seeing romance. I'm seeing risk. I want to string a rope 1,100 feet across the gap from Niagara Falls and 160 feet up in the air, and I'm going to walk across that rope. And so let me tell you a bit of how the story went. A world-famous tightrope walker, uh, he decided he would be the first to walk across the, 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 the gap of Niagara Falls. He began to promote the event and the buzz around the town grew. He was actually a really good promoter and entertainer and as he was a tightrope walker. The day came for the performance and Blondin did not disappoint. Uh, neither did the residents of the neighboring towns. Thousands of people came to watch him risk his life. And part of me is just like, I, I'll be honest, I don't want to watch someone die. I, I don't understand this. I never have. I, like, we're at the Grand Canyon, and these people are leaning out doing selfies, and I'm like, I can't look. I don't, I don't want to watch you die, you know? But I guess back in the day, that was entertainment, you know? They didn't have TVs and sports or whatever. I don't know. So let's go watch this guy fall to his death. Yes, get the picnic and bring the family, and here they come. Thousands of people came. Some were there to heckle, to make fun of this man. They thought, there's no way he's going to do this. Some were there to cheer. But they were there, nonetheless. Blondin arrived, and he got the crowd worked up into a frenzy. He got them all excited. And then he jumped on the rope to do a couple warm-up exercises. And I think, I think he was being strategic here. Uh, to the crowd's amazement, he didn't look nearly as stable as they would have expected. He, he's just playing it up. He's like, ooh, ooh, you know, on the rope. And, and they're like, oh, my goodness, this guy's going to die for sure, you know. So he's playing it all up, and uh, parts of the crowd begin to hurl insults at him. This can't be done. You're going to die. You're crazy. You're never going to pull this off. The rest of the crowd, they just got quiet. They just grew, grew quiet as they watched him warm up and, and practice. Well, Blondin set out across this rope one step at a time, and he finally, after a long time, reached the other side. And the crowd just went berserk. And then on the way back, he was a little faster, made it back. But he wasn't done. He proceeded. Think about this. And, and this, this, may, this account may have come across multiple events, but they put it all together, at least in this, the way this guy says it. He proceeded to go back and forth uh, five other times. He traversed the rope without the pole, right? So a lot of times they have that long pole that helps you keep your balance. He was like, forget the pole. I'll just go just like this. And then he did that. No problem. Came back. Then he decided to take a chair and carry it out. It had cross, uh, cross beams between the, the legs and he sat those cross beams on the rope and he sat down and took a break halfway across and then he juggled his way with juggling pins all the way across and all the way back and i mean the crowd is they're just losing their minds this guy's crazy after that he took a hot plate halfway across he made himself lunch With every trip, the crowd got louder. I actually read this morning that he took a chair and balanced the chair on one leg and then stood on the chair on the rope halfway across that. This guy, it's amazing he didn't actually die from a fall. For the last trip, he ratcheted things up significantly. 
the wheelbarrow was unveiled. Now, I believe he had a wheelbarrow and he took the tire off so it was a kind of a concave uh, shape that would kind of hug the rope, right, as it would go across. People got quiet. He said to the crowd, do you think I can cross with this wheelbarrow? And after all the stuff they had seen, yeah, you can do it. We know you can do it. Of course you can. What do you mean? And they cheered. And then Blondin asked for a volunteer to ride in the wheelbarrow. Have you heard this? I mean, the, the, you talk about change the dynamic. Who, show of hands, who thinks I can do this? Every hand up. Oh, you got this. Who wants to ride? Who? How interesting it is. Finally, a man stepped forward and he said, I'll ride. I'll ride in that wheelbarrow. He took the man across the rope and he made it. And then he brought him back safe and sound. Made it. Now, the reason I tell this story, and I'm sure this story has been told many times over, is because it's an amazing illustration of sola fide. Faith alone. No ground of my works beneath my feet. I am saying, Jesus, I'm all in. I'm banking everything on you. I will trust you. I'm getting in the wheelbarrow. I'm going to ride across. There is a huge difference between being in the crowd and hearing about Jesus, hearing about what he has done, and, and ooing and awing and saying, Oh, that's amazing. What a Savior. What a Savior. The difference between that and saying, I'll get in the wheelbarrow. Amen. Is the difference between faith and entertainment. How many of the crowds followed after Jesus? Oh, Jesus, do another trick. We want that heavenly bread again. Can you do that thing with the bread, you know, when you fed us all? Those fish were amazing. We want more tricks. Entertain us. And Jesus grew weary of that. It's not the point. It's not about the tricks. It's not about the signs. It's about the Savior. It's always about the Savior. Do you trust me? How much will you trust me? Will you bank everything on it? Your entire eternity. Will you put that on the line in faith? That's what Paul's saying here. That's what he's saying. It's sola fide, no works, no trust in myself, no dependence on my works. I am completely surrendering everything to you. Get me in that wheelbarrow. Here's an artist's rendition of it. I love that he had the people that rode in the wheelbarrow look at him. You know, struck by that? I just was struck. I'm, I'm hearing as we run the race, who do we look to? We look to Jesus. We lock eyes with Christ. Don't look down. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. So you're sitting in that wheelbarrow and you're holding on to him and you're looking into the face of glory. I trust you. I depend upon you. I need you every hour. Hold me. Help me. Save me. Bring me home. And what a great example of faith that is. Now, we could take the 160 feet and drop the floor out of eternity into the fires of hell and say, that is what Christ does to save sinners. Now let's go to verse 27. Total and complete trust. Then Paul asks the first question, what becomes of our boasting? What becomes of our boasting, friend? He concludes, it is excluded. By what kind of law? By, by a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We have no ground for boast. It's gone. Okay, so David, where are you? Come up here, man. Come on. Let's, let's illustrate this. Since we got the wheelbarrow, all right, 
You climb in here, just like that, that lady. All right, you're looking at me. Okay, oh man, all right. Don't, don't lean back too far, okay. You good? Don't tip over. Now, here you go. This thing work? Okay. Check, check. Here's your, here's your megaphone. Now, I'm walking the tight. Whoa, hold on tight. Okay. Whoa. I'm, I'm going to try to do this on flat ground and see if it works. I'm walking the tightrope. Now, David, I want you to say, look at me, everybody. Oh, that's not loud enough. We got to get that louder. All right. Talk out there. Okay. I'm so awesome. Say that. Say that. I'm so awesome. Yeah. Look at all my work. Okay, I'm spinning you around. Are we seeing how upside down this would be? What should David be saying on a megaphone? <laughs> you did great, man. I can see the fear in your eyes because I'm not Jesus. That's good. Well done. The question is not, my friends, is there a boast? The question is, in who? Who will the boast be in? Are we going to boast from the wheelbarrow as we ride in total faith on Christ and say, hey, everybody, check out what I'm doing. My works. Look at me. Look at me, everybody. Pretty impressive, huh? You're like, Shut up, dude. You're just riding in the wheelbarrow. It's the guy who's balancing, who's keeping you from eternal death. That is the awesome in the equation. There's no boast in you, right? There's no boast in me. It's all in Christ. The megaphone should be on, though. Loud and clear. We have a boast. It's not in us. Why does God bring up boasting so much? Have you noticed this as you move through the New Testament? Over and over and over. Here's a sampling of this. Just, just so we're clear, your theology must have a category for the exclusion of all human boasting. If it does not, you are missing all kinds of verses. There's no boast in me. No boast in you. God chose. God chose. He's the one who chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why did he do all this? Here's the reason. Here's the answer. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God, in themselves. Well, the reason I'm saved is because I'm smarter. The reason I'm saved is because I figured it out. The reason I'm saved is because, well, I'm just a little more righteous than the rest of y'all, I guess. Right? Fill in the blank. Come up with whatever you can. There is nothing, nothing that any of us can say that would distinguish us from anyone else by the fact that we are saved. Why am I saved? Ultimately, the answer is, it wasn't because of me. What wasn't me? It was God. It was God. When the goodness and loving kindness of our God and our Savior appeared, He saved us. To be clear, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy. That's, that's the answer. Why are you saved, Christian? Because God showed me mercy. Why did he do that? Because God showed me love. Why did he do that? I have no idea. I didn't deserve it at all. He chose to make me an object of mercy when I deserve to be an object of eternal wrath. He did this through the washing of regeneration. We've talked about that. It's the work of the Spirit in connection with the Gospel. He, he poured this richly upon us through Christ our Savior so that being justified by His grace. Look at how it connects here. We're, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And here you have this, 
this, this mingling of these things. They come together. They're almost inter- interchangeable here. It's no merit of your own that you are saved and made an heir according to the hope of eternal life. In the verse we quote all the time, by grace you've been saved through faith. By grace you've been saved through faith. And, and this is not your doing. You didn't do that. You didn't save yourself. You didn't contribute a tiny ounce of saving or meritorious work. You received a gift. The gift of God. It is not a result of your work. And you have no ground for boasting. It's excluded. It's over and over and over. And yet there are many people that if you really press them in their theology, they will say the difference between me in my salvation and someone who is unsaved is I chose. I did it. I understood it. I did something. No. That's not the difference. That's the effect. That's the effect. Your choice was real. How did you choose? Because God opened your eyes, changed your heart, gave you the very faith by which you employed to trust Christ. That is the difference in the equation. God. God. We're going to see this in Romans 9 through 11. Very distinctly. It is at the very heart of the gospel. God has designed the gospel in such a way as to eliminate any and all human boasting in us. There's nothing left. Hmm. He wants all the glory. That's, that's the heart of it. God wants all the glory, and that's good. It's not wrong. He's not a megalomaniac. God is all-glorious. And so for him to want anything less than all glory would be to deny himself. To deny his goodness. This is the gospel that we believe. This is the gospel that saves. This is the gospel we proclaim. And this is the foundation of our boast in him. And so the reformers rightly said it is that we are saved solely Deo Gloria. I love this. I, I could sign every email this way. You see this on my Facebook thing. Is I love this. It captures it so well. All glory to God alone. From beginning to end, Christian, your life is solely Deo Gloria. Your life, your existence is solely Deo Gloria. Boast in the Lord then. Get that megaphone out. That's what evangelism is, friend. Evangelism, in its simplest understanding, is simply boasting in the Lord, the one who showed you mercy when you deserved his wrath, the one who calls you to be a proclamation of that to the ends of the earth. Boast in the Lord. Like King David, join the ranks of those who have a boast in something way bigger than themselves. Why, why is this such a big deal for, for the religious types, right? I mean, Paul's writing now here to people who are in church, especially to those who have Jewish background, who may be inclined with this law-keeping thing. I would just say this. If you have uh, an idea that somehow you're going to bring your salvation to pass, even in part by your working for it, then you establish a subtle basis for pride. You know, we may understand this more as legalism. There's two different forms of legalism. One is just rules, 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 all the stuff you can't do. It's all about rules. Do this, don't do this, all the stuff you can't do on Sunday. Okay, that's part. Legalism at its most toxic nature, however, is this. You have to be a good person to get what God has for you. You have to perform. You have to keep and obey and do things in order to merit his love and his grace. It is completely anti-gospel. But if you have a church that embraces this kind of living, then you will have a church that is seething with pride 
just below the surface. Because as soon as you walk in legalism, here's what happens. You begin to look around and say, well, I'm doing a little better than that guy. I feel good about myself. You might not say it, but you have a ground to boast. You have a, a basis by which to kind of springboard into a word. Well, you know, those guys, they're, they're so messed up. I'm, I'm not like them. And if we're not careful, all of a sudden, we will find ourselves sounding like the Pharisee. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that guy, that tax collector down there, that loser. In our day, it might be different. What inclination in your heart would be expressed in, in that kind of passing of judgment, that kind of arrogance and pride? Oh, Lord, I thank you. I'm better than this guy. Ooh, do you feel that? There. We have to guard against this, friends. The gospel leaves no room for that kind of attitude. The gospel eliminates that kind of thinking. Totally. We aren't better. <laughs> Look at us. We're not better. We've been saved by grace through faith. It's a gift. Hmm. Let's keep going. Chapter 3, verse 29 and 30. One God, one sovereign in salvation. One sovereign in salvation. Paul asks another question, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, he is. He is the God of the Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? I love what Paul does here. He brings his Jewish readers, his Jewish audience, back to the Shema. It's how this would, it's at the youngest age. The faithful Jews would teach their kids the, the Shema. Here's how it would go. Shema Israel, Adonai Eluhinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. What does that mean? It means that there is no way that God is just the God of the Jews. There is no place in the universe where there is not one sovereign. There's not other gods. We're not polytheists. We're monotheists. We believe that the Lord is one. Which means that the Gentiles receive salvation from the very same God. Circumcised by faith. They receive the gift uncircumcised by faith they receive the gift oh this was a huge pill to swallow for the jews they they struggled with this their entire lives were defined by careful and extremely precise practicing of obedience of the law and now paul is saying that in the new covenant uncircumcised people can be saved you see this, the Judaizers, right? They push back on the gospel. And they, in the early church, they begin to say, well, sure, you can come to Christ for salvation, but you definitely need to be circumcised. Paul takes, uh, takes Peter to task over this, right? That's wrong. It is not faith plus works. It is faith alone. It saves. This gives us evangelistic confidence, friends. We have a gospel that is good news, not just for Americans. It's not just good news for Jews. It's good news for Muslims and Buddhists and, and the Sikh community and Native Americans. It's good news to the ends of the earth. God, the sovereign, is over all the nations. There's one God, and his way of salvation is to be carried to the ends of the earth. This is confident for we who carry the gospel. Now, verse 31, grace-enabled, faith-filled obedience. Grace-enabled, faith-filled obedience. I like how Paul asks these questions. Again, remember Paul. He is like the professor who's been teaching 
forever. He's heard all the objections. He's heard the questions a thousand times. He's 20 years into his ministry now, right? He has evangelized Jews for over 20 years, and he knows what they're going to say when he declares the gospel. And so he anticipates the question, he asks it, and then he answers it. Next question. Well, do we then overthrow the law, Paul, by this faith? You're saying it's faith alone, apart from works of the law. So I guess you're saying that the law is out. It's just, it's just like a, a relic in salvific history. Is there no place for law? Meganoito. Hmm. Here it is again. Remember that? Meganoito. May it never be. By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. It's not that we're just kind of neutral. It's, it's, it's not we're, that we're abolishing the law. We are propping it up. We are esteeming the law by saying that we're saved by faith alone, apart from works of righteousness. Well, how can he say this? Well, all of chapter 6 to answer that, right? That's where we're going. We're going to be there in a number of weeks. But the short answer is right here in this verse. We uphold the law. He plants the seed. He knows he's going to build it out, so he, he, he wants to head off that, that, that road uh, uh, block right here to keep people from falling away from the message as he presents it. Number one, Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus is the ultimate law keeper, and it is through his obedience to the law that we are made righteous. The very righteousness that we receive by faith is perfect obedience to the law. Think of that. That's why it's upheld. It's not pushed aside or, or cast away. It is literally embraced by faith in a way that you could never embrace it by works. The genius of this, this design, the wisdom of God. But secondly, it doesn't stop there because we are saved, declared righteous. We are, we are positionally made righteous and then we are called to progress in righteousness and holiness. And so we obey out of this. Look at this. Faith equals salvation and works. It is not faith and works equal salvation. That is such an important diagram to have clear in your mind. True saving faith is going to show itself in the expression of joy and obedience and surrender. It is going to show up. It will, Christian. If it doesn't, there's cause for concern. If your life you say, is defined by a love for Christ and, and, and you care nothing about his commandments, Jesus himself would say to you, you don't love me. See what I'm saying? Faith in Christ is an embracing of Christ completely. I trust you. Lead on. Lead on. What kind of works does this show forth? And what, what kind of fruit comes from the root of faith? The fruit that is shown is this kind of fruit. It's grace-enabled fruit. It's, it's, it's grace-enabled. means we're dependent upon, uh, upon Him. We bear fruit by abiding in the vine. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Grace-enabled. And it's faith-filled. Lord, I believe that your way is the best way. I mean, we were just teaching this at the wedding yesterday. Your way is always the best way. And so we trust you, we wait for you, we obey you, we seek to please you in this. Not so that we would be saved, because we are saved. Happy-hearted obedience, not begrudging, oh, you know, Lord, I guess you're just a big killjoy up there, trying to ruin my life and take away all my fun. So fine, I'll just be bored the rest of my life and follow you. I mean, is that salvation? Have we actually seen Christ? If that's the way we're going to walk the, through the Christian life? I would just say, if you're there, go back to the gospel. Look again at the Savior. And place your faith in Him. Totally. Get in the wheelbarrow. 
And you'll see a different expression of joy, happy-hearted obedience. It's not always easy. We cling to Him. It's humble obedience. I need you. Help me obey. Help me obey. And it's all to the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. I am not stacking up obedience to try to make much of me. Everything that we do is to, to, to cause people to say, look at those good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. Matthew 5.16, right? Shine that light in such a way that when they see it, they say not, oh, you're pretty impressive. They say, what a great God you have. That's our goal as believers. Now, the Father of Faith, chapter 4, he builds this out. Paul is going to draw now from two of the most highly revered people of the Jews in their story. He starts with the Father of Faith. That would be Abraham. Chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? So here's his question. He anticipates it. He asks it, and then he's going to answer it. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, well, then he's, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was the faith of Abraham that was the, 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 the counting of righteousness. That was the mechanism of his being counted or declared righteous. Not his acts of righteousness that made God choose him. God said, you're my guy. Obey me. Follow me. Trust me. And go. I was just struck as I thought back over Abraham's life. Clearly, this man was a sinner. That's not hard to see. There's many places where he didn't have wonderful, perfect displays of, of faith. In fact, some of the most devastating uh, consequences of Abraham's decision-making that linger still over to this day in Israel with, with the Palestinian conflict in Israel go back to a lack of faith of Abraham. However, when God called him to leave everything and follow he left. He loaded up everybody in the car and he got to the corner and he didn't know which way to turn. Go to the land I will show you. Okay, I'm going. Um, I'm going. I'm trusting you. I don't even know where I'm going. That's faith. That's faith. He waited for a son in faith. Perfectly? No. You realize Abraham was 100 years old before he had Isaac, his firstborn son? Sarah was 90. That's mind-blowing. Why did God do it that way? To eliminate any boast. Abraham and Sarah could not say, well, you know, this was kind of just our normal life and God took credit for it. No, you don't have kids when you're that old. That's not happening. God said, trust me. That's in Genesis 15. It's in that context where it says these words. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Then they finally have Isaac. And Isaac grows up to be a young man. And the Lord says, I want you to take Isaac and go up to the mountain. I will show you and sacrifice him there to me. Uh, hold on. He's the promised son that we waited a hundred years to receive and I'm supposed to kill him? First of all, we don't do child sacrifice. That's not who you are. We don't, like Everyone else does that. We don't do that. But, but he's the son. If I kill him, guess what he did? He went. He took Isaac. He bound him. Isaac willingly allowed his father, his old father, to bind him. And the knife was in the air. And here's what it says about Abraham's faith. He believed God could bring his son back from the dead, even if the knife plunged into him. And so he was ready to take his life. And it says in Hebrews 11 that Abraham, as it were, received 
Isaac back from the dead, even though the Lord stopped him and provided a ram, a substitute sacrifice. All of this is gospel. You see the gospel in all of this? Father who offers his son. That's faith operating. The works are a display of the faith, but it is the faith that justifies. He believed. Are we living in merit-earning performance or are we living in faith-fueled obedience? The drastic difference. The first is religion. The second is real salvation. Christianity. It's Bible. The first will lead you to the fires of hell because guess what? You, you're never going to be good enough. You cannot do enough to save yourself. That's the whole point of the law. You can't keep it. Faith-fueled obedience says, I know I can't keep the law. There is no way I could ever earn salvation from you, Lord. And so I trust Jesus in his perfect obedience and his satisfying uh, uh, of, of wrath, death for me and his victorious resurrection. I lean everything upon him and, and I seek to walk with you every day in the light. I want to obey. I'm yours. Now, faith of a sinful king. King David is the second person that Paul is going to draw our attention to. Also extremely esteemed and revered. But this is an interesting little twist that he gives. For those who would struggle to see Abraham as a sinner, which is not hard to do when you read the story, he was a sinner and so was Sarah. It's not hard to think of David as a sinner, though. David's sins are pretty blatant. They're pretty awful. Verse 4. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. To the one who does not work, but believes him who justifies, key word here, the ungodly. Ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. The reference goes to Abraham and to David. This reference here to, to sinful, the ungodly, the unrighteous. God is the one who declares unrighteous people righteous by faith. That's how he does it. Do we receive salvation from God as, as someone who works for wages receives their pay? You put in a full day's work and you go to your boss and he gives you a check. It's the agreed-upon amount that he said he would pay you at the beginning of the day. You say, thank you. That's what I deserve. You see, the, the, the point is this, is, this is a transaction we worked out at the beginning. I put in the work, you put in the money, done. At the end of the day, that's no surprise. That's expected. Friends, do you realize how many people are living their lives going through this life with this subtle, maybe even unspoken assumption that they deserve salvation from God. That they, well, yeah, of course I do, right? There's nothing on the radio that would lead me to, to believe otherwise. Of course I deserve salvation from God. I'm a good person. Hmm. That's not what the Bible says. No one deserves salvation from God. Not one person. And yet God gives salvation to the unrighteous. He makes them righteous through faith. It goes on. Just as David, i.e. the ungodly king, right? Also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Listen to his words. And then he quotes from this psalm. Blessed are, the one, are, are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. I, I think it's Psalm 36 he quotes from here. Blessed, happy, forgiven are those whom the Lord will not count their lawless deeds against them and hold them against their sins. 
well, how in the world is it possible that God can do that? That faith in justice being satisfied is a faith that anticipates the work of the Messiah. King David, when he repented of his horrific sins, he repented with an anticipatory faith. He anticipated Christ right there, paying for King David's sins. And he placed his faith. He placed his faith. That's amazing. Paul is saying that King David was trusting in Jesus. He just didn't know his name. And so was Abraham. In fact, Jesus in his own words. Remember this in Luke? Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And then he adds, he saw it and was glad. Abraham was saved by faith in Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, what an amazing, amazing gospel we have. Faith and repentance go hand in hand. So often when we are actually saved, when that moment that we are saved, this is our experience of it. We see Christ, we see glory, we see love, we see sacrifice, we see his gift for us, and we feel the weight of our sin, and we say, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. I am sorry. I am a sinner. I look to you in faith. I ask you to save me from my sins. I turn from my sins to you in faith. That, my friends, is the work of God. It's the gift of salvation. Faith and repentance. Salvation is not a wage God gives to good people. It is a gift He gives to bad people. And Paul wants us to be really, really clear on this. And so he's really dialing this in week by week. He's, he's, he's closing it in even more. Let's be clear. Jesus, as He said, I didn't come to... to to help the righteous. The righteous have no need of a, of a physician. I came for those who are sick and dying, who have need. What's he saying? It's the same thing that Paul's saying here. Quote, unquote, good people, they don't exist. Bad people, they qualify. As soon as we're honest with the Lord, as soon as we're honest with our sin, I need a Savior. I can't save myself. My most glorious works are filthy rags. The count is nothing before you. I look to you. Save me. Save me. It's so important. This is the very heart of the gospel. What we believe with all our hearts. So our response this morning, we just ask two questions here. Are you in the wheelbarrow with Jesus? Number one. Is this where you, if you're honest, at the level of the soul, are you there? Have you said, I'm all in. I, I'm, I'm done trusting in me. I'm done trying to be good enough on my own. I'm done with this whole religious routine where I try to, try to do this and that to try to be, be good enough to be saved. It's not going to work. I give it up and I'm getting in the wheelbarrow. What's fun is... is Jesus wheels you to church in the wheelbarrow, right? It's a completely different reason for coming to church. He wheel you in here. He'll sit you down. He'll say, soak up some words. These are my words. Drink it in. Drink it in. All right, here we go. Where are we going this week, Jesus? I'm walking eyes with you. Lead on. Show me the way. You've got me. You've got all of me. You need to make a decision for Jesus Christ. If you're here and this, this hasn't happened in your life, I would encourage you today. Make today the day that you say, enough is enough. I'm going to trust you, Jesus, with all my heart. I'm getting in the wheelbarrow. Just call out to Him. Turn to Him. Save me from my sins. I trust you. Second, you got the megaphone? Who are you boasting in? Who are you living your life to draw attention to? Who, who would your coworkers say that megaphone's blaring about? Who do you talk most about in terms of glorifying? And please, 
please don't say the Seahawks. Right? Or the soccer team or the baseball team. Or even your kids or grandkids. Our greatest boast, our evangelistic potency comes when this is declaring the greatness of the God who saves sinners like you and me. So join King David and live this week with the megaphone. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear. Why the why the Because the proud, they can't hear that. They don't care. But those that God stirs in their hearts to hear this good news will bow before this king and they will also rejoice and be glad. Boast in the Lord, my friend. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We have every reason to boast. We don't deserve this gift you've given, but you have just lavished it upon us in love and grace and mercy. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for making us objects of your your grace and your love and your mercy. Oh, your kindness to us is amazing. We give praise to you, Lord. We thank you for your love. We we ask, Father, that you would uh, accomplish in us all your good pleasure this week. Make our boast in you. We, We want to boast in you above all else. I pray for any who would be here today who have yet to to get in the wheelbarrow with Jesus. Oh Lord, stir in their hearts even now. Do what they can't even do themselves. Open their eyes to see the glory of a Savior who loves them and who would lay His life down for them to bleed out in their place and pay for their wrath. And who lives to give life and forgiveness to all who trust by faith in Him. Oh, stir hearts, Lord. Bring salvation today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.